Welcome to this Upila Audio presentation of The Boy Fortune Hunters in Panama by Floyd Akers. Volume 7, Chapter 16, The Arrowmaker. We were up and stirring early, and after a good breakfast and a draft of cool water from a sparkling brook nearby, we started again in search of the Valley of the Diamonds. An hour's swift run brought us to the slight depression in which stood the great block of red granite we had so eagerly sought. There was no mistaking it. As the German had said, curiously enough, it was the only granite boulder we had seen in this country. A long horizontal spike of rock near the apex pointed unerringly into the nearby forest, and I dismounted and walked from the boulder slowly in the direction indicated by the guide. Sure enough, on reaching the forest, I found myself confronting a gigantic mahogany tree, standing a little in advance of its fellows. So with a shout of joy, I beckoned to my comrades and waited for them to join me. Duncan ran the automobile close up to the edge of the woods, and then stopped the engines and closed the door of the dome so that we could all take part in the discovery of the diamonds. Entering the forest, which was quite open and clear at this one spot, we had no difficulty in finding the dead stump, and then I fell upon my knees and began to remove the thick moss that clung to the ground all around the stump. I was scarcely more excited than the others, if I may except the princess to whom the treasure had no meaning. Moit, Nux, and Bry were all bending over me, while in the background the Indian maiden watched us with a plaintive smile. To her, this anxiety to secure a collection of pebbles was not quite comprehensible. At first, the moss resisted my efforts. Then, as I moved farther around, a great patch of the growth suddenly gave way to my grasp and disclosed a large cavity between two prongs of the stump. I leaned over to look, then thrust in my arm to make sure. The cavity was empty. Try somewhere else, cried Boyd hoarsely. He had risked a good deal for the gems which were to enable him to become famous and wealthy, and this disappointment was sufficient to fill his heart with despair. Had he not found another treasure in Alala, which might somewhat mitigate this baffling failure. I worked all around the stump, digging up the moss with my knife and fingernails, but in every other place the ground was solid. There was but this one vacant cavity, and when we at last knew the truth, we stared at each other in absolute dejection. He must have put them in there, though, I said hopelessly. The trouble is that somebody else took them away. Ah, oh, yes, I did, said a strange voice at our side. I turned and found a tiny Indian standing near us. At first I thought it was a child, but looking more closely perceived the lines of age on his thin face and streaks of gray in his hair. Yet so small was his stature, he was no taller than my breast. He wore the ordinary sun-blazed tunic, striped with purple and yellow, a narrow band of green showing between the two plebeian colors. When first we saw him, he had assumed a dignified pose, and with folded arms was looking upon us with a calm and thoughtful countenance. "'Greetings to Charn!' exclaimed the princess in a pleased and kindly tone. The dwarf, or Lilliputian, or whatever he was, advanced to her with marked but somewhat timid respect 
and touched the fingers of his right hand to the fair brow she bent toward him. Then he retreated a pace and laid his hand upon his heart. My princess is welcome to my forest, he said in his native tongue. Is it near here, then, that you live, my Tichon? she inquired. Very near, my princess. But tell us, I cried, unable to control myself any longer. Did you find many of the white pebbles in this cavity? Did you take them all away? Yes, he answered readily with a nod of his small head. I found them, and I took them away, and there were many. But why did you take them? asked the girl who, without knowing the value to us of the stones, was able to sympathize with us in our bitter disappointment. Tcharn was thoughtful. He sat upon the stump and for a moment studied the various faces turned toward him. Some time ago, he said, a white man came to this valley, which our laws forbid the whites to enter. Perhaps he did not know that I rule the forest, which is my home, that I am the master workman of the Tekla nation. Why should he know that? But the white beast was well aware that his race is by us hated and detested. Here he cast a sinister glance at Duncan and myself. And barred from our domain. He sneaked in like a jackal, hid himself by day, while by night he prowled around on all fours, gathering from off the ground the pebbles which our master the king has forbidden any man to see or to touch. Day after day I watched the white man at his unlawful toil. I sent tidings to the Lignad, the king, who laughed at the cowardly intruder, and bid me continue to watch and to notify him if the beast tried to escape. Finally he saw my face among the trees, and it frightened him. He prepared to run away and buried all the pebbles he had found under the moss beside this stump. Then he slunk away from the valley, and I let him go for the king had been notified and would look after him. This relation proved to us the honesty of the German story. We knew well the rest of the tragic tale and were just then more deeply interested in the loss of the diamonds. Why did you dig up the pebbles when the commands of your king forbid you to touch them? I asked in a bitter tone. The little Indian gave me a scornful look and said to Alala, Must I answer the white child, my princess? It will please me to have you do so, she answered. I must tell you, Tichon, that these white people are my friends. Those who love me will also befriend them and treat them kindly. For a time the dwarf stood motionless, frowning and staring stolidly upon the ground. Then he looked up and said, Does the Lignad also love these whites? No, he hates them and seeks their destruction, the dwarf smiled. Then they will be destroyed, he prophesied. Not so, my Tacharn, replied the princess gently. The power of these white chieftains is greater than the power of the Lignad. Tacharn grew thoughtful again. I saw them approach in a moving house that seemed alive and yet was not, he remarked. That is what one proof of their might, she said. And is my princess now opposed to her father the king? Yes, Tacharn, in this one thing. Then I will stand by your side, for my blood is the blood of your dead mother, and not the blood of the Lignad. But the pebbles, I cried impatiently. Tell us what you've done with the pebbles. He turned his somber eyes in my direction. 
I carried the pebbles to my own dwelling, he returned. They are beautiful, and when the sun kisses them, they borrow its light and glow like fireflies at dusk. I love the pebbles, so I took them. They are mine. This was exasperating to quite a degree. You had no right to do that, I protested. Your king has forbidden you to gather the pebbles. I did not gather them. I took them from the place where the white jackal had placed them. The king will punish you for keeping them. The king? Ah, the king will not know. We are opposed to the king now, right? The princess Elala and myself. With a queer smile, he said this. But you are strangers, and therefore you do not know that in my forest even Nalignad dare not molest the master workman. The last words were spoken confidently, and his prompt defiance of the king pleased me. Who is this man, Ilala? asked Duncan. Ticharn is my mother's cousin, she replied with frankness. And in my mother's veins flowed the most royal blood of our great ancestors. For this reason, Ticharn is a person of consequences among my people. He is called the Arrow Maker, and forges all the arrowheads that the Teclas use. No one else is allowed to work in metals, which Ticharn brings in from the mountains. In this forest, I do not know exactly where, is his secret workshop and his dwelling place. Only one thing is forbidden him, under penalty of torture and death, and that is to gather or use that loathsome gold, which was at one time the curse of the Teclas. In all else, Ticharn is master of the forest, and the people honor and avoid him. An important individual, truly and one who doubtless realized his own importance. Since he had secured the diamonds and loved their beauty, it would be difficult to wrest them from him. While the princess had spoken, the little Tekla had been regarding her with an uneasy look. I see trouble in Ilala's path, he now remarked gravely. Am I not the princess? she asked proudly. You are the princess, and one day you will succeed your father as ruler of the Teklas. If you live, if you do not live, Delignad's children by another mother will succeed him. Will you live, Ilala, you who defy the traditional hatred of your race for the cursed white people? Ilala flushed a little, but not with fear. She wanted to charn to understand her, though, and began to tell him how the white people had for many ages dominated the world beyond the seas, where they had many distinct nations that warred with each other. Some of the white nations were strong and just and wise, and others were strong but wicked and unjust. It was one of these latter nations, she explained, whose people were known as Spaniards that had invaded the country of her forefathers and robbed and oppressed them. Therefore, the Teclas, knowing no better, had hated all of the white nations instead of just that especial one that had wronged them. These friends, she added, pointing to us, have never injured us, nor have their people, who have always warred with the Spaniards, our old and hated enemies. Why then should I condemn and hate the innocent? The dwarf listened carefully to this explanation, and without answering her appeal, he said in a doubtful tone, The chiefs who rule the islands and the coast, all of whom trade with the whites, have told me they're all alike. They are never satisfied but always want something that belongs to others.
I laughed at his shrewd observation, for that was our case just then. We wanted those diamonds. Will you not permit us to see the beautiful pebbles, I asked? Tacharn hesitated. Will you let me see your moving house? he demanded. I nearly yelled with delight. I'd been searching my brain for some way to win this strange personage over to our side, and he promptly put himself in our hands by acknowledging his curiosity concerning our machine. But this proved his intelligence, too, and betrayed his mechanical instinct, so that it increased our respect for him. We will explain to you our moving house, which is the most wonderful thing ever made by the hands of man, I answered seriously. And we will also take you to ride in it, that you may know how and why it moves. But in return, you must take us to your dwelling and show us the pebbles. I was rather surprised that he consented readily. It is a bargain, he said quietly, and Alala whispered that his word might be depended upon. So we all walked out of the forest to where we had left the car, which Tasharn first examined from the outside with minute intenseness. Here is a man who might steal my patents if he lived in our world, remarked the inventor with a smile. But as there was no danger to be apprehended, Moit took pains to explain to the dwarf how the machine would float and move in the water as well as travel upon the land. Then he took the little Indian inside and showed him all of the complicated mechanisms and the arrangements for promoting the comfort and convenience of the passengers. Tachard listened with absorbed interest, and if he failed to comprehend some of the technical terms, which is very probable, as I was obliged to translate most of the description, and there were no words in the native language to express mechanical terms, he allowed neither word nor look to indicate the fact. Afterwards, Moit started the car and gave the arrow-maker an impressive ride around the valley, gradually increasing the speed until we very nearly flew over the ground. When at last we came to a halt at the forest's edge, it was evident we had won the dwarf over completely. His face was full of animation and delight, and he proceeded to touch each of our foreheads, and then his own heart to indicate that we were henceforth friends. We will ride into the forest, he said. I will show you the way. It suited us very well to hide the machine among the trees, for we might expect the natives to search for us and give us further annoyance. But we failed to understand how the big machine might be guided into the tangled forest. Tchard, however, knew intimately every tree and shrub in the place. He directed Moit to a spot where we passed between two giant mahoganies, after which a sharp turn disclosed an avenue which led in devious windings quite a distance into the woods. Sometimes we barely grazed a tree trunk on either side, or tore away a mass of clinging vines, or dodged by a hair's breadth a jagged stump. And after all, our journey was not a great way from the edge of the forest, and we were soon compelled to halt for lack of a roadway. The rest of the distance we will walk, announced the dwarf. Follow me, if you will. I shall never forget the impressiveness of this magnificent forest. The world and its glaring sunlight were shut out. Around our feet was a rank growth of matted vines, delicate ferns, and splendid mosses. We stood in Shadowland, 
a kingdom of mystery and silence. The foliage was of such dainty tracery that only in the deep seas can its equal be found, and wonderful butterflies wing their way between the tender plants, looking like dim ghosts of their gorgeous fellows in the outer world. Here was a vast colonnade, the straight, slender, gray tree trunks supporting a massive roof of green, whose outer branches alone greeted the sun. Festooned from the upright columns were tangled draperies of climbing vines, which here rested in deep shadow, and there glowed with a stray beam of brilliant sunshine that slyly crept through the roof. And ever, as we pressed on, new beauties and transformations were disclosed in the forest's mysterious depths, until the conviction that here must be the favorite retreat of elves and fays was dreamily impressed upon our awed minds. But almost before we were aware of it, we came to a clearing, a circular place in the wood where great trees shot their branches into the sky and struggled to bridge the intervening space with their foliage. The main attempt left a patch of clear sky visible, although the entire enclosure was more than half-roofed by leaves. Instead of moss and vines, a grassy sward carpeted the place, and now we came upon visible evidence that we had reached the abode of the little arrow-maker. On one side was a rude forge, built of clay, and supporting a bellows. In a basket beside the forge were hundreds of arrow-points, most cleverly fashioned of bronze, while heaps of faggots and bars of metal showed that the dwarf's daily occupation was seldom neglected. The tools strewn about interested me greatly, for many were evidently of American or European make. But Tacharn explained this by saying that his people often traded their coconuts and skins for tools and cutlery, and at these times he was allowed to select from the store such things as he required. But where do you live? asked Moit. And where are the pebbles? Come, said the arrow maker briefly, and he led us across the glade and through a little avenue where there was a well-trodden path. A moment later, a mass of interwoven boughs covered with vines confronted us, and stooping our heads, we passed through a low archway into Wonderland. Chapter 17 A Woodland Wonderland What we saw was a circular chamber formed of tree trunks at the sides and roofed with masses of green leaves. The central trees had been cleared away by some means, for a large mahogany stump was used for a table, and its beautifully polished surface proclaimed it had been a live tree when sawn through. Also, there were several seats formed from stumps in various parts of the room, and one or two benches and a couch had been manufactured very cleverly from polished mahogany wood. But these were by no means the chief wonder of the place, the walls were thickly covered with climbing vines which reached into graceful festoons to the overhanging central boughs. But these were all the creation of man rather than nature, for they were formed from virgin gold. Also the ornaments scattered about the place, the mountainings of the furniture, swinging lamps, and tabarets, all were of gold. And never have I beheld the equal of their exquisite workmanship or unique design. 
The tracery of every leaf of the golden bower imitated accurately nature itself, the veins and stems being so perfect as to cause one to marvel. Not only had a vast amount of pure gold been used in this work, but years must have been consumed in its execution. Oh, Ticharn! cried Alala in a shocked tone as soon as she had recovered from the wonder of her first look. You have broken the law! It is true, answered the arrow-maker, rather calmly. Why did you do it? she asked. The yellow metal is very beautiful, he said, looking upon the golden bower with loving eyes. And it is soft and easy to work into many pretty forms. Years ago, when I began to gather the metal for my arrows and spears, I found in our mountains much of the forbidden gold, and it cried out to me to take it and love it, and I could not resist. So I brought it here where no white man could ever see it, and where not even your father was likely to come and charge me with my crime. My princess, you and your friends are the first to know my secret, and it is safe in your care, because you are yourself breaking the law and defying the king. In what way? asked Alala. In seeking the pebbles that are denied our people, and in befriending the whites who have been condemned by us for centuries. She was silent for a moment, and then she said bravely, To Charn, such laws are unjust. I will break them, because they are my father's laws and not my own. When I come to rule my people, I will make other laws that are more reasonable, and then I will forgive you for your gold work. Oh, Ilala, exclaimed Moid, how can you rule these Indians when you are promised to come with me and be my queen? She drew her hand across her eyes as if bewildered, and then smiled sweetly into her lover's face. How easy it is to forget, she said, when one has always been accustomed to a certain life. I will go with you, and I will never rule my people. You are wrong, my princess, declared the dwarf eagerly. What to you is the white man's land? You will rule us indeed, and that in a brief space of time. No, my friend, she said. The house that moves will carry me away with my white chief, and in a new land I will help him to rule his own people. The arrow-maker looked at her with a dreamy, prophetic expression upon his wizened features. Man knows little, he said, but the serpent of wisdom knows much. In my forest the serpent dwells, and it has told me the secrets of days to come. Soon you will be queen of the Teclas, and the white chief will be but your slave. I see you ruling wisely and with justice, as you have promised, but still upholding the traditions of your race. You will never leave the Sanblaze country, my Alala. She laughed brightly. Are you then a seer, my cousin? she asked. The dwarf started as if suddenly awakening. His eyes lost their speculative gaze. Sometimes the vision comes to me, he said. How or why I do not know, but always I see truly. Duncan Moyt did not understand this dialogue, which had been conducted in the native tongue. He had been examining with appreciation the skilled workmanship of the beautiful creations of the Indian goldsmith. 
But now our uneasy looks and the significant glances of Nux and Bryonia attracted his attention, and he turned to ask an explanation. The princess evaded the subject, saying lightly that the dwarf had been trying to excuse himself for breaking the law and employing the forbidden gold in his decorations. I turned to Ducharn and again demanded, Show us the pebbles. At once he drew a woven basket of rushes from beneath a bench and turned out his contents on the top of the great table. A heap of stones was disclosed, the appearance of which at first disappointed me. There were many shapes and sizes, and they had surfaces resembling ground glass. In the semi-gloom of the bower, amid the shining gold tracery of its ornamentation, the pebbles seemed, well, uninteresting. But Moit pounced upon the treasure with exclamations of wonder, examining them eagerly. Either the German or the arrow-maker had chipped some of them in places, and there the clear, sparkling brilliance of the diamonds was fully demonstrated. "'They are magnificent!' cried the inventor. "'I have never seen James so pure in color, or of such remarkable size and perfect form!' I compared them mentally with the stones I had found in the roll of bark taken from the dead man's pocket, and decided that these were indeed in no way inferior. The dwarf opened a golden cabinet and brought us three more diamonds. These had been cut into facets and polished, and were amazingly brilliant. I'm sure Charn had never seen the usual method of diamond cutting, and perhaps knew nothing of the esteem in which civilized nations held these superb pebbles of pure carbon. So it is remarkable that he had intuitively found the only means of exhibiting the full beauty of the stones. Will you give me these, my cousin? asked the princess. For an answer, he swept them all into the basket and placed it in her hands. She turned and, with a pleased smile, gave the treasure to Moit. At last, I said with a sigh of relief, we finally accomplished the object of our adventure. At last, agreed Duncan. I have enough money to patent my inventions, to give the machine to the world in all its perfection. But we must get out of here, Master Sam, observed Bry gravely. That's true, I replied, and I hope now that we have no further reason for staying, that we shall have little difficulty in passing the lines of our enemies. We confided to the arrow-maker a portion of our adventures, and told him how Nalignad had seemed determined to destroy us. When the relation was finished, I asked, Will you advise us how we can best regain our ship without meeting the king's warriors? He considered the matter with great earnestness and then inquired, Will your machine run safely in the waters of the ocean? I repeated the question to Moid. Yes, if the water is not too rough, he answered. Then it is best for you to go east until you come to the coast of the Atlantic, said Tichard. The tribes of the southeast will not oppose you if the Princess Alala and I are with you. When you get to the ocean, you may travel in the water to your river, and so reach your ship. The advice was so good that we at once adopted the suggestion. The arrow-maker now clapped his hands, and to our surprise, three tall natives entered the bower and bowed to him. He ordered them to bring refreshments, and they at once turned and disappeared. Who are those men? I asked. They are my assistants, 
who helped me to forge the arrows and spears, he replied. The king allows me three men, and their tongues are cut out so they cannot tell others the secrets of my art. That explained why he was able to devote so much time to the execution of his gold work. The servants shortly returned bearing golden dishes of exquisite shape, on the polished surfaces of which familiar scenes in the lives of the San Blaise were cleverly engraved. We were given fresh milk, a kind of hominy boiled and spiced, slices of cold mutton, and several sorts of fruits, including coconut meats. Sitting around the splendid table, which would have conferred distinction upon a king's palace, we made a hasty but satisfying meal, and then prepared to return to the automobile. I think the little arrow-maker was as eager to ride in the wonderful machine as to guide us on our way, but we were very glad to have him with us, and he sat quietly absorbed by the side of Duncan Moyt and watched the inventor direct the course of his automobile over the difficult pathway between the trees. We reached level ground without accident, and then, turning to the left, increased our speed and traveled rapidly over the now-familiar plains in the direction of the sea. We followed the edge of the forest as well as we could, for here in the uplands the numerous streams were less difficult to cross. But soon after we passed beyond the point of our first excursion in this direction, we came upon a good-sized river sweeping out from the wood, which Tacharn told us flowed into the Atlantic further toward the north. There were dangerous rapids in it, however, so we decided it would be safer to continue on to the coast than to trust ourselves to this treacherous current. And now we soon began to pass the coconut groves, while groups of natives paused to stare at us wonderingly. But we made no halt, for the plains were smooth and easy to travel upon, and the less we had to do with the natives, the better off we were. A mile inland from the ocean, the dwarf told us were many villages. We decided to rush past these quickly to avoid being stopped, and Tacharn agreed it would be wise. Explanations would be sure to delay us, even if these tribes had not already been warned by the messengers from Nalignad to capture us if we came their way. So when we reached the villages, we shot by them like a flash, and the sensation we created was laughable. Men, women, children, even dogs, rushed from the path of the dreadful flying monster in a panic of fear, and we heard their screams and wild cries long after the houses had been left far behind. These tribes may have been just as brave as the ones farther north, but their natures did not appear so stolid and self-possessed. The ocean came into view suddenly, and we found the banks so high above the beach that we were obliged to turn north until we reached a small river the water of which was deep enough to float us out to the sea. Here we bid farewell with much regret to our arrow-maker, and Duncan generously presented him with such wrenches and other tools as could be spared from his outfit. These presents gave the dwarf much delight, and for my part I was so grateful for his assistance that I gave him my silver watch and showed him how to tell the time of day by following the movements of his hands. He understood it very quickly, and I knew he would obtain much pleasure from his possession. It was little enough indeed for the transfer of the diamonds, which were worth a fortune, but the gems were valueless to him, even had he been able to own them without the risk of forfeiting his life. We left the arrow-maker earnestly watching us from the bank as we paddled swiftly down the stream, 
but soon our attention was directed to other matters and we forgot him. When we reached the ocean, we headed out boldly, but the long waves rolled pretty high for us, we soon found. It was not at all a rough sea, yet Moit was forced to acknowledge that his invention was not intended for ocean travel. After we had tossed about for a time, we went ashore, finding to our joy that the beach was broad and sandy and the tide was out. This was the best luck that could possibly have happened to us, and we sped along the sands at a fine rate of speed, resolved to make the most of our opportunities. Just before we reached the northern forest, however, we found that King Delignad had been thoughtful enough to anticipate the possibility of our coming this way, and he had sent a large force to oppose us. They were crowded thickly upon the beach, and we were given the choice of meeting them or driving out into the ocean again. I rather favored the latter course, but Duncan's face was set and stern, and I saw that he was intent on running them down. He increased our rate of speed until we were fairly flying, and in a moment more we bumped into the solid ranks of the Indians and sent them tumbling in every direction, not so much on account of the machine's weight as its velocity. Those who were not knocked over made haste to get out of the way, and in a few seconds they were all behind us, and we could slacken our terrible pace with safety. We had passed the mouths of several streams on our way and circled some remarkably broad and pretty bays. So now we began to look for the river in which our wrecked ship was stranded. One broad inlet we paddled up for a way, but it led straight into the woods, so we backed out again, and the next time we were more successful, for soon we were able to discern the Gladys H lying on her side, and we knew we were near our journey's end. Alala told us that small ships sometimes came to this river to trade with her people for skins and tortoise shell, but none had been there for several months. At first I thought that our wreck was entirely deserted, but after a time Uncle Nabot's pudgy form appeared at the stern, waving his red handkerchief in frantic greeting. A moment later our sailors flocked to his side, and then a lustful cheer of welcome saluted our grateful ears. <laughs>